the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hi, everybody. And tonight, our lawyer guest is Ishmael Jose. Hello, everyone. And he's, he's been on the show before, and one of the reasons he's on the show is because Jerry Cooney challenged him to a boxing match to go three <laughs> rounds with him in June next year at, uh, I don't know, where is it? Where's that boxing match going to take place? Hey, I'm starting to forget about it. (laughs) It, The one this year was at the uh, W Hotel in Hoboken, so I assume it'll be there or around there next year. It'll be next June. That's it's for YCS. But no, we do have to thank Jerry Mel. You you can tell him what the memento you got from Jerry Cooney when we met a couple of weeks ago. Right, he's such a gentleman, and he he his name precedes him, and I really enjoyed speaking to him and I like the part in this book where he compared boxing to life and he teaches everyone basically that you got to be able to take the shots and you know take your chances and um, enjoy life however you define it and that's what I like about that book he's such a gentleman okay now before we get into Jerry Cooney he's going to be on at the end of the show we're going to talk about our usual things, estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going to court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. So, you know, I think we've got a couple of questions this week from the email. Mel, why don't we start off with your question? I think this que- this question coming from Mark has something to do with his experience. Um, he asked... When do we? When do witnesses to a will have to testify in court? It's a good question, you know, because sometimes here's the problem, you know, and we're getting it a little bit more and more as time's going on. People print up wills off the internet. They get any two witnesses to testify, and then the forms are either not qu- quite filled out right, and then the court wants to interview the witnesses. And of course, if you pick two witnesses off the street, who knows what where they're going to be when the time comes? But when do witnesses have to go into court and testify? One, if somebody contests the will. Who can contest your will? Basically, your next of kin by law. And some people don't realize this. Let's say you don't have any children. You're not married when you die. You have 10 nephews and nieces. Nine of your nephews and nieces sign a consent to your will. The 10th one doesn't. The 10th one files objections to the will. That can stall everything up. The, the, that nephew or niece who doesn't consent to the will has a right to examine the witnesses in court, or at least under oath in front of a notary. That costs money, and that takes time. 
And you might say, well, oh, nobody's going to contest mine. Well, you never know. And in a lot of cases, it can stall things up so much that the people who are named in the will might give a nuisance settlement. A nuisance settlement sometimes can still be expensive, and it takes, you know, because you're trying to cut down on legal fees on the other side. So you can be tied up in court for years. If somebody just files objections to the will, that's not my uncle's signature, files it in court, and that could go on for years. It might go to trial if you have just a little bit of evidence that says, well, this doesn't match the Christmas card I got from him in 1998 or something. That's one reason if somebody can test your will. Another reason where you may have to have the witnesses testify in court is if there's an irregularity. If, let's say, the, if the original will is lost, in that case, the witnesses would have to testify in court because it's a two-pronged thing. One, you have to explain what happened to the will, and two, you have to prove the validity of the will. So then the, the witnesses might be there if the original will is lost, the original copy, or the ori- I shouldn't say copy because then it wouldn't be an original, but the original version of the will, if that's lost, you may need, you know, the witness to testify. And some people say, well, you know what, that's, why do we have to worry about that? We'll just sign two original wills. Well, if you do that, under the law, in theory, if you sign two original wills, if either one of those two wills is not produced in court, then that will is deemed to be destroyed and revoked. That's not a good place to be. Another time, just if there's irregularity like we have one right now, somebody printed up, you know, a will off the internet, the notary didn't notarize their signatures, the will is not is leaving to somebody who's not a relative. The court wants to interview the witnesses to the will. So those are they're, they're different reasons. There could be other reasons. You know, like in, in some cases, let's say for the sake of argument, uh, there are minor children involved or something like that. Let's say you have a will that leaves husband and wife. Husband leaves everything to his wife. Uh, there are minor children involved. The guardian picked by the court may say, I want to interview the two witnesses to the will to see if the will was properly signed that, uh, in effect, disinherited the the minor children because they can't protect their own interests. So there are a lot of different reasons. I mean, one of the main reasons where you the witnesses would have to testify in court if the will's being contested, because anybody who can test the will has a right to talk to the witnesses, to interview the witnesses under oath by their lawyer. Of course, that takes time and that takes money. So that's one of the reasons we want to avoid probate. Probate is a court proceeding, and Whenever you go to court, you never know what's going to happen, one. And two, you never know how long it's going to take because even a routine matter could take a very long time to get through court. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough takes one of our email questions, answers it, or I shouldn't say he answers it. He asks the question on our show, and we try to answer it. So take it away, Kevin. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week, you get one question answered, all free of charge, from one of New York's most coveted uh, legal minds, as he is the uh, top guy in the area on all things elder elder law and estate care, and we're uh, always glad to have him with us. Mike Connors is his name of Connors and Sullivan. And Mike, this week's question says, my mom has a lot of jewelry worth over 40 thousand dollars does that jewelry count as an asset when discussing medicaid thanks signed tom well believe it or not it does not count as an asset as far as medicaid is concerned now some people when they're in emergency situation they're going to a nursing home sometimes they buy jewelry i'm not a big fan of that because in a lot of cases when you buy jewelry and the person passes away the jewelry disappears and starts fights in the family but the, the simple answer to the question is no, jewelry is not an asset for Medicaid purposes. So you don't recommend it, but if this person uh, needs to, uh, I mean, the advantage is not uh, having it to count as something, then they're going to be able to get Medicaid uh, coverage easier. 
Right, right. The, the jewelry does not interfere with the Medicaid application. Okay. Uh, friends, maybe you've got questions about uh, very similar things. You can get them answered right here on Kevin McCullough Radio every week uh, when, when we uh, do this with Mike Connors or his own broadcast at 8 a.m. on AM 570 The Mission Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. on AM 970 The Answer. And you can always call their office and say, hey, I've got this question about uh, Medicaid and asset allocation and so forth. Uh, they're glad to set up up an appointment for you, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. You can also send him new questions at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again to Kevin McCullough. You can listen to Kevin's show each Monday through Friday on WMCA The Mission at 3 o'clock Monday through Friday on WMCA The Mission 570 or on 970 The Answer Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock, but he has an extra hour on Wednesdays because he's also doing an hour with John Katsimatidis. So thanks again, Kevin. Kevin did mention the the email address for our audience. Chris, can you give it again? Yes, that's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. We have it at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. So send them right over. Okay. Well, again, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back answering your questions again at the end of the break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. I'm here. And Mel. We're still here. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, September 24th at Lenny's Clam Bar, 161-03, Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. On Wednesday, September 25th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. at Connolly's Corner, 71 17 Grand Avenue in Masspeth and on Friday, September 27th at the Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. 6500. That's Connors and Sullivan. 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. That's connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. 
Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey, guys. And one of the attorneys from our office. Hello, everyone. This is Mel. We've got two interviews tonight. The end, you know, we end up with Jerry Cooney, who Mel is is getting in training for to fight in an exhibition (laughs) in June next year. Uh, We're looking for a venue and everyone will be invited. Right. I think I have a better shot with golf. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to see some pictures of Mel and Jerry Cooney together, you check out our, our Facebook page on Ask the Lawyer. Chris, how do you how do you like us on Facebook? That's an easy one, Mike. All you have to do is go on Facebook. You can find the page Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. That's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. There's a big uh, thumbs up, a little button with a thumbs up that says like on it. If it doesn't say liked, that means you haven't liked it yet. So like it, click on that, then it'll turn into a liked, which means you have liked the page. I like that. Very good. <laughs> and then you can see a picture of Mel next to Jerry Cooney. And you can also heart it now. Right. Well, oh, you, you, you can, can heart it now. Mm-hmm. You can heart the, the the photos and the comments and everything, oh, things like that, yes. and the posts. You can heart the posts, and you can go wow, and you can even put a big laugh on them. So, we, <laughs> so maybe the match next year. You see the video of the boxing match next year. <laughs> a lot of wows on that if one. I'm pretty sure. For me. <laughs> well, that's a question. You can either go to Newfoundland with yeah. us or fight Jerry Cooney. Well, that's a choice for you. <laughs> That's the choice. <laughs> Either way, you're going to be put in the freezer somewhere along the line. <laughs> exactly. All right. Now, we're going to be talking a little later in the show. Again, we're going to be talking to Jerry Cooney at the end of the show. We're also going to be talking to Jake Quinn, a historian. And we're going to be talking about Clara Barton. Clara Barton is a very interesting character. She's the founder of the American Red Cross, and it's a long story behind that. But our interview tonight is going to be talking about her effort to try to find missing soldiers after the Civil War. And a lot of her efforts were placed on the soldiers that were killed at Andersonville. It's, it's an interesting story. It's something I really didn't know that much about. And we're going to be talking about Jake Wynn, who's going to be the next guest at the Civil War Roundtable in New York on, on September uh, 11th, 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street. And we'll give you the phone number to call for reservations earlier. And, and again, we're starting up another year of the Civil War Roundtable, Beth. Yet another one. Good. How many years have we been members? I think about 20 some odd years. Good and, grief. You know, I just remind, we we lost uh, one of our elder statesmen this past week, Bud Livingston. Very oh. sad. Bud Livingston was uh, the author of the book, Brooklyn and the Civil War, which is, if you live in Brooklyn or even if you're connected to Brooklyn, you should read that book to get an idea of what Brooklyn was like during the Civil War. Uh, he was also a big Sherlock Holmes fan and, and wrote a, a book about Sherlock Holmes. But let's get back to estate planning for a minute. Beth, do you have an estate planning question that was emailed to us? I do indeed. Um, and this is from Christina. This this is a, um, an elder law question for sure. My mom has Parkinson's disease and needs assistance at home. She spent most of her money on her care, but she still owns her house. Can I get her on Medicaid? Well, assuming she lives in New York, yes. Basically, in New York, there's no look-back period to apply for home care Medicaid. Home care Medicaid pays for medical supplies, equipment, and most importantly, home attendance to keep a person out of a nursing home. So yes, mom can apply if she's run out of money, which means she has less than $15,000, she can apply for Medicaid today, assuming she's disabled or over 65. The other thing is, yes, she can apply owning a house for Medicaid today. The only problem is if she applies for Medicaid 
and she gets Medicaid assistance. If she dies with the house in her name alone when she dies, Medicaid is going to put a lien on that house. And of course, if you're paying home care expenses four or $5,000 a month, let alone nursing home care, those expenses are going to take a big chunk of the house. So what do you do? That's where you do a trust agreement. Now, how we word the trust depends on the circumstances and what mom wants to do. But we put the house in a trust. We avoid probate on the house, which means when mom passes away, Medicaid can't put a lien on the house. So we put the house in a trust. The trust is going to say, I leave the house to my two children. You know, and again, it depends what mom wants to do. But let's say mom has two kids. I leave the house to my two children and two equal shares. We have a couple of what ifs in there. Mom can then apply for Medicaid. Let's say if she if she signs the deed over in September, she should be able to apply for Medicaid medical assistance to pay for home care bills on October 1st, the first day of the month following the transfer. There is no look back period for home care Medicaid. Even if mom had money in the bank, she could put that money in the bank in a trust controlled by one of her children or a combination of her children. She can do that, let's say, in September and apply for home care Medicaid on October 1st. I can't stress this enough. There is no five-year look-back period for home care Medicaid. Now, what if mom goes to a nursing home? That's a different ballgame. We have to figure out. You know, sometimes we can do an intent to return home, and we can save that house from nursing homes. Maybe one of the children lives in the house, and that would protect the house from nursing homes. Also, if we have a brother or sister living in the house, or of course, if there's a spouse, we can protect the home right away. Otherwise, we might do an intent to return home, keep the house in a trust, hope that it never comes to a hearing whether mom can return home or not. But we can always do something. If you want to, you could always sell the house and you might lose roughly half the proceeds in the sale of the house to a nursing home, assuming mom lives that long. But it's better than losing the whole house. But in any event, the house should be in a trust. That's a no-brainer. The house goes out tax-free. In other words, free of capital gains, free of estate tax. And if mom's looking to pay for Medicaid, it certainly should be free of estate tax because there's no estate tax in New York under $5,740,000. So mom puts her assets in a trust today. She applies for home care Medicaid next month. The house will go out tax-free to the kids without going to probate, without going to court. And, you know, as we mentioned before, it's important to avoid probate. It's important to avoid court because, you know, maybe there's some irregularity with the will and maybe the witnesses to the will have to be called into court and that would provide, you know, a delay. You know, I can't stress this enough. If you own real estate, the best way to deal with it is through a trust agreement. And one of the good things about a trust agreement, you can put your house in a trust today and you can apply for home care Medicaid next month. Yes, the house doesn't count as an asset. And I hear this all the time from social workers. You know, they say, well, you don't have to put your house in trust because you're eligible for Medicaid today. That's true. But then if you apply for Medicaid, you receive Medicaid benefits. Medicaid can put a lien on the house after you're gone. And home care costs can be expensive too. It can be easily five, six thousand dollars a month. You live a few years, you could have a two hundred, three hundred thousand dollar lien on your house. So if you're going to do this planning, do it right. Again, you're more than welcome to give us a call at Connors and Sullivan at seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be talking to Jake Wynn about Clara Barton. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do 
this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, sometimes if, if you ever come to my office in Brooklyn, we have a Civil War hospital scene, and, and one of the figures I have is that of Clara Barton, founder of the American Red Cross. And we're going to talk about Clara Barton today with Jake Wynn, who's the speaker on the Civil War Roundtable on September 11th. Welcome to Connors Corner, Jake. Thank you so much for having me. First, who is Clara Barton, and what are you going to be talking about at the Roundtable? Yeah, Clara Barton is uh, is one of the most fascinating characters of the Civil War era and, and really in American history, one of the most important women in our nation's history. Um, she goes from being kind of an average everyday person from Massachusetts, uh, born there in 1821, and goes on to become a, an American hero, a humanitarian who does, as you said, goes on to found the American Red Cross. Uh, but during the Civil War, she uh, becomes a relief worker and a nurse and gains the reputation as the angel of the battlefield. Um, So that's who we'll be talking about. And specifically, uh, we're going to be talking about um, a lesser known aspect of her legacy. Um, In the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, Clara Barton spearheaded the efforts to search for missing Union soldiers. You know, that's something that really has not occurred to me. So, all right, after the war's over, missing Union soldiers, where would they be? If they Obviously, they may be lost on the battlefield, but are there some still alive wandering around? Yeah, so there are many who are still alive, um, and uh, Barton actually starts the, starts the effort with uh, prisoners of war. Uh, she learns of a prison camp called Andersonville in Georgia, where about 13,000 Union soldiers perish in a, in a relatively short span of time because of disease, malnutrition, and also because of rough handling by the Confederate overseers at the camp. Uh, what Barton is really horrified by is the fact that That's 13,000 Union soldiers whose families have no idea what happened to them, um, that they have uh, been uh, lost as victims of of this prison camp. And that's just one camp. 
Um, there are thousands of other soldiers in, in dozens of other camps as well who perished as a result of the war and whose families had not received any notification of the fate of their loved ones. So Barton starts the effort there, and that grows to include those who disappeared, who, who uh, uh, were killed on the battlefield, um, say destroyed, their bodies destroyed on the battlefield or buried in unknown graves, um, but did also count those uh, whose families wrote in um, asking for information about their loved ones who, turns out, were alive um, and were trying to, uh, many of them went west and, and assumed new identities um, and, uh, you know, never really looked back. So it's a combination of those who were killed on the battlefield, who died in prisons, and then also those who uh, who's, were alive and, and didn't want to be found. Let me just go back a second. Let's say somebody died in a Confederate prisoner of war camp. Their families were not notified? Correct. Their families were not notified. How difficult do you think it would have been to do that back then? Yes. So um, there, the system of notification, to, to kind of answer your question, you have to go uh, back and look at you know, the responsibility of the federal government and what it was viewed at at that point. Uh, these soldiers, uh, North and South, were fighting for uh, a larger cause. So in the North, fighting for the U.S. government and the Confederacy, fighting for uh, this nascent country that, that they want to create. Um, there is a, a belief amongst these governments that uh, the soldiers who are fighting, they are attached to state units, mostly, uh, that are serving in a, in a federal or a larger government capacity. Uh, so the federal government and the Confederate government, uh, neither of them believe it is their responsibility to notify uh, the next of kin uh, when a, a soldier is wounded or captured or killed on the battlefield. That responsibility falls to uh, the soldiers and officers in the units that those soldiers were serving in. Um, and so the basically the two ways that, that a, a family would be notified if something had happened to their loved one uh, on the battlefield during the war or in a, in a hospital or a prison camp, the notification would come from uh, letters uh, from, from that soldier's comrades, uh, say a ser someone serving in the same unit or from the officer in that unit, or in a newspaper, uh, notification, uh, these long lists of casualties from things like battles, um, families would be notified that way. Uh, if your uh, husband, brother, son, you know, if, the, if your loved one went missing um, and, 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 or had become a casualty during the war and you didn't receive a letter from someone in the unit or didn't see their name in a newspaper on one of these casualty lists, you would have no other way of knowing what happened to them. They would be, uh, they would have disappeared without a trace. Uh, and Clara Barton is seeking to provide an office, a way that people can, these families who are grieving are going to be able to get some notification, some information about their loved one. Let me ask you something. Were many of these guys deserters? There is um, some. So, so to, to answer that question, I have to go a little bit to what records do survive from this office. Um, Clara Barton and her team receive about 60,000 letters uh, in three years' time. Uh, about 100 letters a day came into the office. Um, of those letters, um, there's probably about 20 to 30 of them that survive in the Clara Barton collection at the Library of Congress. The rest of the letters, we are not entirely sure of what happened to them. Uh, from those letters that do survive, we do have some idea uh, that some of them were likely deserters who slipped away um, during uh, or after battle or after hospital stint if they were ill um, and who slipped away and, and were seeking to create a new life for themselves away from their family, away from their previous lives. 
And you have to think of how much of the country was available to them to go out. And we don't have any, you know, facial recognition in the 19th century. Uh, and many of these, you know, no birth certificates or, or very little documentation for these people. It was very easy to assume a new identity. And so we believe that many of these men who went missing and who were never found, uh, many of them did die on the battlefield or in, hosp in, in uh, hospitals and, and prison camps. Um, but there's a sizable number that likely slipped away um, as deserters and never looked back. Now, was there any identification system back then? You know, like today we have dog tags. Was there anything similar to that in the 1860s? There were, um, except they were not standard issue by, by the governments of these uh, that, that were fighting in this conflict. Um, if you wanted a, a form of identification, they did exist. There are ID tags uh, from the Civil War that are still around, still in people's uh, museum, in museum collections and, and in private individuals' collections. Um, but that was on the individual to go out and purchase that and have it engraved with their name. Uh, as for the standard average soldier uh, going into battle, uh, they did not have uh, identification on them. And so if something should have happened to them on the battlefield, what they were really hoping for is that the documents, the, the papers, many of these men are going into battle carrying uh, letters, uh, tokens from loved ones, um, going out onto the battlefield, if something should happen, uh, they are really relying on being buried by their friends, um, by comrades who could um, identify their grave, inform the family of what happened to them. Um, but that, in many cases, the nature of the Civil War and, the, and Civil War combat, um, many times there aren't comrades left um, to, to do that burying, to do that identifying. Uh, and um, if, say, the battle that you were uh, become a casualty and, and you're, you're killed in action during that battle, if your body ends up in the hands of the enemy uh, and they rip off your coat and any possible identifying information from your, uh, from your body, they have no way of, of identifying uh, those remains. And so many times the enemy, when they're burying, uh, when you know Confederate or, or Union soldiers are burying the enemy's dead, many times they're put into mass graves uh, without any identification at all. Um, and as a result, are, are going to end up as unknown graves in cemeteries all over the country. Clara Barton and her crew, I mean, going back to the 19th century, I ha where do you start looking for people? How do you look for people? So they really start the effort in 1865 uh, by using um, the, the records that are that the meager records that did exist from prison camps that had been uh, had been captured. Um, some some people um, there's a, uh, a clerk at the camp in Andersonville, Georgia, who was a Union soldier who had been captured after Gettysburg, he actually takes uh, some paperwork that he had made copies of uh, that included the, the uh, location of most of the, the, the burials at Andersonville Cemetery, where the, the dead were buried outside the, the cemetery or outside the prison's gates. Um, and uh, he snuck it out and brought it, brought it north with him when he was transferred out of the prison. And he took that to Clara Barton. So that was a big help, um, you know, in excess of 10,000 names on that list. Um, but the main way that Barton is, is and her team are going to do this is they begin to gather information. They notify the northern public, and they are only looking for Union soldiers, northern soldiers in this process. Uh, they send out a essentially a press release to the northern uh, press uh, saying that Barton has started this office, that any family members of missing Union uh, personnel should write to the missing soldier's office, which was located in her boarding house uh, where Barton lived in Washington, D.C., uh, and that should have any uh, identifying information, so name, uh, what state the soldier was from, what unit they served in, and uh, many families sent in things like 
photographs, uh, other identifying information in the letters that they sent to the office. And Barton will take that information, compile it, put it onto these long lists that become known as missing soldiers roles that are subsequently published in a kind of like a newspaper-like format. And then our, those uh, roles were sent out to the northern public, uh, showed up in newspapers, also showed up in uh, on public bulletin boards, post offices. Uh, and that those roles of missing soldiers told anyone who recognized someone on that list uh, and knew of their fate to write into the missing soldiers office. Um, and so that is the, the, the way that many of the, of the missing soldiers that are going to be located through this process are going to be found either through these documents that were secured from places like Andersonville or from families sending in information and that information being uh, picked up by comrades or friends that served with that soldier uh, and then informing the family of, of through the um, kind of the medium of, of Clara Barton's missing soldiers office. How many soldiers were, were located in, in this process? In this process, uh, over the three-year time period from 1865 to 1868, they find 22,000 missing soldiers. Uh, that's 22,000 uh, soldiers whose families uh, had no information about what had happened to them. Um, that is 22,000 families that will now have at least scraps of information to be able to bring uh, the grieving process to a close um, and get some closure for these families who had no other recourse. What did Clara Barton do after this? I mean, she lived a long life, you know, after the Civil War. Absolutely, absolutely. So the Civil War really becomes a pivot point in her life. Um, in 1861, Clara Barton was living in Washington, D.C. Uh, when the war broke out. as She was a former teacher. Uh, she's actually one of the first women to work for the federal government. Uh, she was working, uh, she was seeking a, a, her job back at the patent office, the United States Patent Office in Washington, D.C., and she will work there through the Civil War. Um, but the conflict becomes a, a, a project for her. She's going to start gathering supplies for soldiers, for Union soldiers. Uh, she begins to take those supplies out to the battlefield, uh, and despite having no nursing training, will become known as a battlefield nurse during the war um, and gets the nickname Angel of the Battlefield. Uh, after the Civil War and after her time with the Missing Soldiers Office, in 1868 and 1869, she goes to Europe uh, to kind of recuperate uh, physically and mentally from the experience uh, of the Civil War. She was very traumatized by her experience. As she um, always struggled with her mental health. Um, so she goes on vacation to Switzerland, um, stays with the family of a of a Union soldier who had been wounded during the during the war and who had helped her during the missing soldiers office years. And she goes to stay with the family in Switzerland. And uh, just so happens that's also where the International Committee of the Red Cross was based. Uh, she met representatives from that organization uh, and volunteered with them during a conflict in 1870 uh, and 1871. And she was just enamored. Uh, with the Red Cross. She thought it was an incredible organization with a great mission to help um, kind of in a nonpartisan fashion uh, to help uh, those suffering during wartime. And so in, uh, in the 1870s, she lobbies Congress um, and, and politicians and business leaders in the United States to uh, get America on board with this project. And in 1881, uh, the American chapter of the Red Cross is born and Barton becomes its president. Um, and for the next 20 plus years, Barton uh, works with the American Red Cross uh, and creates really humanitarianism as we know it today. Uh, she responds not only to war, uh, but she also responds to humanitarian disasters of all sorts, uh, fires, floods, storms, 
earthquakes. Uh, she takes the American Red Cross uh, and goes to those sites to provide assistance and relief uh, and builds this organization, the, the American Red Cross, into a, a behemoth um, that in the 20th century will become the Red Cross as we know it today. Now, is there a museum or a site dedicated to this office of missing uh, soldiers? Yes, that is the office that, uh, that is the museum where I work uh, in Washington, D.C. It's known as the Clara Barton Missing Soldiers Office Museum. Uh, we tell this story of uh, Clara Barton's Civil War work. Um, it's a, a boarding house where Barton lived from 1861 to 1868 and operated the Missing Soldiers Office from 1865 to 1868. So she both uh, lived and worked there uh, during the basically the entirety of the Civil War era. Uh, we tell that story in addition to telling the story of how the building was uh, saved uh, from destruction in the 1990s. Uh, and this plays a part in, in the story that we tell because uh, the building, the third floor where Barton lived, had been abandoned in the 19-teens uh, and left vacant until the 1990s. Uh, and the building was being prepared for sale uh, by the GSA, the General Services Administration of the federal government, when a carpenter from that organization, uh, as he's on the, the abandoned third floor of this building, uh, felt a tap on his shoulder, uh, turned around, there was no one there, uh, but happened to see a letter sticking out between uh, wallboards very close to the ceiling in this abandoned space. Uh, he climbed up to the, to the ceiling to a hole uh, in, the, in the roof of this uh, particular room and uh, stumbled on uh, a sign with Clara Barton's name on it. And then in further investigating, he found uh, more than a thousand artifacts from the Civil War era, uh, many of which, uh, some of which had ties to Clara Barton, had Clara Barton's name on it, um, on these, some of these documents and, and these artifacts. And so that saved the building from being torn down. Um, it means that we have this restored, now restored 19th century boarding house uh, with these ties to the Angel of the Battlefield. Where is the boarding house? Where is the museum? So we are located in downtown Washington, D.C. It's about uh, two blocks north of Pennsylvania Avenue on 7th Street. Um, it's about two blocks from the uh, from the National Archives as well. So we're right in the heart of, of historic downtown D.C. Um, it's a great place to come and see uh, how Washingtonians lived during the 19th century. Uh, it's also about three blocks away from Ford's Theater. Jake Wynn, thank you for bringing history to life. We'll see you at the Civil War Roundtable. Excellent. Looking forward to it. If you want to hear Jake Wynn in person, you have to call for reservations at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street. The date is September 11th, Wednesday, September 11th. The place, the 3 West Club. Dinner at 6, doors open at 5.30. There's a cash bar from 5.30 to 7. The cost has gone up a little bit. For members, it's $60. You get a three-course meal. Non-members, it's $75. And, you know, I've always been saying this all the time. You know, sometimes they're from some very excellent programs at the New York Historical Society, and you pay about $45, $50 in some cases. You sit in an auditorium. Here, you have a three-course dinner. You're able to interact with the speaker. You know, the, the speaker doesn't get whisked off the stage at the end. The speaker usually stays there for, in some cases, I've seen the speakers stay there for hours answering questions, first from the floor and then privately people come up. So I strongly recommend, if you're interested in the Civil War, and listen, as far as Clara Barton is concerned, I really don't know that much about her. And I, I learned more from this interview than, than I knew about Clara Barton. So if you want to call for reservations, you have to call ahead of time, 718-341-9811, 718 
3419811 the Civil War Roundtable 3 West 51st Street September 11th Wednesday Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust power of attorney healthcare proxy living will or protecting your assets from nursing home costs Connors and Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests The professionals at Connors and Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years I'm Mike Connors come to our office for a free initial consultation Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500 or Visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. A couple of weeks ago, Mel and I in our office had the privilege of meeting Jerry Cooney at a book signing. His book is, is Gentleman Jerry, and it not only talks about his battles in the ring, but his battles outside of the ring. And I was very impressed with the story. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Hi, hey, thanks. Nice, nice to be on with you guys. I appreciate you uh, having me on. One of the things... I mean, yeah, a boxing fan may enjoy the book to to learn about the fights and all the great fighters you fought and everything else. Maybe you had a bigger battle outside of the ring? Well, yeah. I mean, I grew up in a in not the, the greatest of atmospheres as a kid. You know, I, I think about my children often, and my father grew up in a horrific household. And so you you got to figure, how could he again grow up, have kids, and do the same thing? It was just that my oldest brother left at 15. That's really basically how I became a prize fighter. Uh, I used to follow him to the gym, and and then eventually I put the gloves on, and I found out that boxing helped me express the anger I felt from what was going on in my house. And then they put my picture on the back page of the LA News almost every week after I fought. So uh, one thing helped me with my anger, and the other thing made me somebody, and now I stuck with boxing. But then you had some problems, which you outlined in your book. Yeah. Well, yes, and it's it's a... you know, problems you grow up. I grew up in an alcoholic family. I was never going to become like that guy that put put us, uh, my whole family, through this nightmare, including my mother. And, uh, you know, we have a tendency to pick this, the same dysfunctional kids and you, the kids, you know, and you become that same thing. How'd you overcome that? Well, I mean, it's lifelong. I mean, I started uh, drinking back when I was 12 years old. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't stop until I was 31, 30, 30 years old. And uh, it just stopped working. And I, you know, I, uh, 1981, I fight uh, Ken Norton in Madison Square Garden. I believe that night I could have beat anybody in the world. And I knocked him out in 54 seconds. And you'd think that I would say, well, I got to get a good trainer. I got to get in shape. I'm going to fight uh, Larry Holmes for the heavyweight championship. But unfortunately, that's what happened. That other guy kicked in. And I guess the fear or 
the reality about real life. And I started to drink and numb the pain out. And so uh, over the next 13 months, we, I trained hard and worked hard for the home site, but I was also drinking and not taking care of myself. And it catches up with you. And how'd you beat it? I mean, that's the, the, the best part of the story, I think. Well, I mean, listen, we stopped working and woke up one day and thought to myself, what happened to me? It was 20 minutes to 11. I was in this beautiful, my house in the Hamptons, and I got scared and I quit that day. The next day I woke up the same way. And that's when I said, please, you got to help me. And uh, the, the desire to drink went away. I believe God took that away from me that day. And I, I was on my road to recovery. That's a story I think a lot of people should be hearing. But right now, I understand you're involved with a charity, Youth Consultation Services. What is that? Yes, it's, 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 it's about, you know, we help about 6,000 kids a year where we have homes all over Jersey. And we help these kids uh, from dysfunction, no parents. We help them uh, with programs. And we, we uh, I personally, myself, I do boxing with them. And I teach them how to get rid of their frustration. I teach them about themselves, hopefully build self-esteem. And not necessarily that they're going to become fighters. But if you can learn to fight, you can learn to do anything. And YCS is the greatest program. It helps thousands of kids every year get on track and get caught up to speed so they can live a productive life. Now, I understand you got a golf outing coming up. You want to tell us something about it? We do. We have a great golf outing coming up uh, at Edgewood uh, Country Club in Riverdale, New Jersey, September 25th. Uh, telephone number is 201-678-1312 for information. Uh, we accept donations for these kids. And listen, there's no better feeling in the world. Now, also, from the fact I came from a dysfunctional family and I worked myself through it, I get to help experience these kids, not only help themselves heal, but also heal that kid and myself that I never had a, had a time to adjust to address. Can you do me a favor? Can you repeat the date and your phone number again? Yes, the date is September 25th. It's Edgewood Country Club in Riverdale, New Jersey. And the telephone number is 201-678-1312 for more information. How'd you get involved with these kids? You know, years ago, I had a friend in town that was a lawyer who was um, helping out the organization. And he thought that I could be a great uh, you know, aunt to him. So I went in and met with them. And this is about 12 years ago we've been doing this. Once or twice a week, we get together and we exercise, we get rid of our frustrations, we get rid of our anger. And it's a whole process. They, you know, when you sit down with a bunch of kids who've been fighting all their life and I show them a highlight film of my life, they identify with the fight of life and you become connected in that way. And then, of course, you know, I mean, I love these kids. I take them out for lunch. I, I bring them a snack, a drink, a, a couple of pieces of gum. And then we box and we work out and we have fun. We play basketball. We, you know, we just get to know each other, give them an extension of myself that I never had that I learned the hard way. You guys have a website? Uh, YCS.org, I believe. But you can get that all that information through that telephone number, 201-678-1312. You've been up there. You've made a lot of money. You're, you're comfortable. Why do you give to charity now? Why do you help out these kids? Well, you know, it's, it's not just, it's, you know, it's, it's, when I was a kid growing up, there was nobody there for me. I had to find my own way in the dark. I had to bang my head against the wall, bang my head against the wall. And it was a scary, lonely, frightening place. I spent a lot of childhood in the basement hiding. And these kids, you know, 
are afflicted with some of those same things. And so it's just, it's not like, you know, it's like you want to do it. You want to help these kids to grow, to get a shot, to have hope, to maybe get a shot at the heavyweight championship in the world or to play in the NBA or to become a mechanic or a doctor or, you know, whatever they want to become. Pursue your dream. Stand up, dust your pants off, move on, keep asking the question, can you help me? And that's been something that's been, uh, I heard the first day I uh, stopped, uh, put the alcohol down and I've been asking that question ever since. So if you want to hear about Jerry Cooney's story or read about it, the name of the book is Gentleman Jerry. I wouldn't say inspirational, but there's heartfelt feelings in there and uh, about how somebody, you know, you can be down in some ways, you can be up in some ways, but if you keep going, don't give up, truth will set you free. And, and yes, and that's and that's, that's the story is that it's a, we keep fighting, we get up, we move on. I mean, how a kid like me grew up in this Huntington, Long Island, and in, in the dysfunctional uh, abuse that I took, uh, took from, and to make it to the heavyweight championship of the world, even though I didn't win the title, I won just to fight that path and fight that fight to the top of the championship. It's amazing. And, and that's out there for kids. And if you sit down and, and listen and get help, you can make it better. You can win the championship. Jerry, thanks for being on the show. Listen, I loved every minute of it. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime you want to talk about a fight coming up, you want to have me on, give me a call. I'll be there for you anytime. All right. Thank you, Jerry. Take care of yourself. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Thank you, guys. Okay, Mel. Are you ready to take on Jerry next June? <laughs> I doubt that. Now, you don't shame us. You know, no. don't, don't, don't uh, weasel out of this one. <laughs> you got to get in shape. You've got time. I'm you even less half his size. <laughs> yeah, but you, well, you, you, you can hit him low. <laughs> how big is Jerry Cooney? I'm not sure six how six. low. I know there's some things you can't hit. But hit him where you can hit him. You know, he's not going to be expecting it. You know, in his fight with um, Larry Holmes, he almost won if it wasn't stopped. Oh, no. <laughs> Why was it stopped? Two of the three judges had him up. You know, he, he, he just kind of, you know, took some low blows to... But he was stopped because he was bat battered by, by Holmes, I guess. <laughs> oh. See, I don't... I really know nothing about bo boxing. I know the... I know names and stuff, but I, I don't know the fights. I never... I Honestly, I can't watch it. It's just something I can't watch. I grew up... My granddaddy loved the weekly fights. Oh, I, I just didn't like watching it. According to the book, Larry Holmes said that Jerry Cooney was the hardest puncher he ever faced. He hit him in the and arm and it felt all over the people. body. Yeah. I mean, do we know it, when somebody that big hits somebody how how hard it is, what the punches are? Well, Mel find out in a couple of months. <laughs> and then he can, he can tell us after that. <laughs> if I'm still up. <laughs> okay, look, this is a matter of honor. This is honor now, so you can't go back on it. You I can tell the, you now, I'm he sweating. Gave you the glove. <laughs> he gave you the, the glove. He did, he did. We owe him and we owe our, our listening audience. We have to get a good venue. I don't know where it's going to be. <laughs> All right, now, September 11th, again, we're going to be back. We're starting the season again for the Civil War Roundtable. And I think Hooray! it's very fitting. I think it's very fitting that we're going to be talking about Clara Barton because Clara Barton was a suffragette. And, of course, the Three West Club was founded by suffragettes. 
And uh, this was, it's a story seldom told, you know. I mean, suffragettes is not real, but I mean, the women have suffered forever. I, you know, we, I was, we had some friends in Texas when we went to the Alamo, and we were talking to them, and they're, they're very progressive. And, um, and they, you know, I said, look, Sharia law, you know, they're, they're teaching that up here in, in, um, CUNY. And I look, I, you know, I said, Sharia law, are you kidding me? Women have only now, next year, is it going to be a hundred years in the United States that we've been able to vote? And now people are thinking Sharia law is chic? Oh. Well, I think, well, when Father Paul gets back in a couple of months, we can have him on the show again and explain a little bit about Sharia law and how it's very it, exciting. Yep. Yeah. By the way, in the Philippines, uh, when do women get the right to vote? There's Sharia law there. In the southern part of the Philippines. Southern part, yeah. Yeah. And there are lawyers whose practice are devoted solely to Sharia courts. Oh, goodness. Down south. Again, today we didn't really talk a lot about estate planning and elder law, but if you want to learn more about estate planning and elder law, listen to Matt in a few seconds, and he's going to give you the dates and times for our seminars in September. In September, we're going to be in Queens. October, we're going to be in Manhattan and Staten Island. And probably in early December, we're going to be in Brooklyn doing our seminars. So hopefully we'll come into a place near you. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. See you again. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, September 24th at Lenny's Clam Bar, 161-03, Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. On Wednesday, September 25th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. at Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Maspeth. And on Friday, September 25th, Seventh at the Adria, two twenty one seventeen Northern Boulevard in Bayside at eleven a.m. and three p.m. Can't go to any Connors and Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to ConnorsandSullivan.com. Plan now for later. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.